Green Sleeves. That version is from the brand new album from Mark O'Connor called Markology 2, and Mark O'Connor is on the line. Welcome to WLRN, Mark. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks for playing it. Congratulations on the new album, and I'll start off by asking you, I know the song Green Sleeves, and I know there was the song Green Sleeves somewhere in what you were playing. What what were you doing there? It was really a an improv jam, wasn't it? <laughs> I had um, some different ideas. Um, it was it was interesting, like, uh, you know, my return to the guitar after a 20-year layoff, I kind of wanted to revisit some old standards and just kind of reinvent them. Um, you know, they've been played so many times over the years uh, by guitar players especially, and by myself. Uh, I mean, I, I, I played uh, some of these pieces on the new Markology 2 album, you know, since I was 12 years old. So I wanted to really kind of test uh, whether I was going to come back as a, a new guitar player uh, with new ideas or just kind of regurgitate the ones I already had the last time I had played guitar. And so I really made a conscious effort to just kind of re-engage with the creativity part and just take them to a whole new place. You hadn't played guitar, you said, in 20 years? Yeah, I just picked it up again um, in 2017. Um, and uh, after uh, putting it down for 20 years due to bursitis and tendonitis issues in my right elbow from flat picking, um, uh, thankfully it didn't affect my... Uh, violin playing uh, nearly as much, although I had to watch it. But um, there was something about what I was doing on guitar back in the 90s that just blew it out. And so um, I just set it aside just to try to save my violin playing career. And then um, and then in the last few years, I just got reinterested in the guitar again. And, and I was able to approach it, um, you know, with a little bit more of a a maturity that was watching out for p potential injury and, you know, not overly practicing um, to the point where you're pushing yourself, you know, into into the threshold of having pain. That must have been pretty scary times back in the 90s when you thought your livelihood was threatened. Yeah, I, I had to quit everything for a couple of months. I couldn't even, you know, I couldn't even move my arm. Um, but yeah, it just goes to show you that, uh, that I think that a lot of young musicians, um, you know, can injure themselves through repetition, practicing, especially rehearsing. I don't think a uh, stage performance really affects the injury that much. Um, I don't hear that much about it. And I've never really experienced um, it from performing. So it's just a really about discipline. You know, if you uh, have a tweak in your arm, it's best just to set it aside for for half an hour or an hour or even the day, and then revisit the next day. So that's what I've done with the guitar, and, and it's worked. Do you, were you taught the wrong way? I don't think so. I think that uh, you know a lot of uh, classically trained violinists get injured. You know, with with the you know the most scrutiny of technique, technical training you could you could buy. So it's really just the the nature of the physicality of of performing using those joints and, and muscle groups, those 
uh, and in a repetitive motion. So this album, Markology 2, is really your first solo guitar album. Well, it's uh, the first solo guitar album um, since the one I was 16, <laughs> which was uh, Markology. And uh, I kind of wanted to make that tie-in, you know, very seldom in life do you get to do a 42-year sequel, <laughs> a follow-up 42 years later. And uh, so I wanted to play on that. And also, uh, the w one of my guitar mentors uh, who, who helped me with the first Markology album when I was 16, uh, Tony Rice, um, he had just passed away. So I wanted to dedicate this album to his memory. Well, let's talk a little bit about Tony Rice. You, you, when did you first meet him? I was 13, and I uh, met him when he was still with J.D. Crow, and uh, we hung out a little bit, and then, uh, then he joined the David Grisman Quintet uh, the following year, and then I sat in with him and David when I was just 15, uh, and then I uh, had the opportunity to record that guitar album and Tony helped me with it, and uh, he helped me mix it and so forth. Um, and he became a mentor during that time. And then we did a lot of playing together the following year. Uh, but it worked, it worked out that I was going to join David Grisman instead of Tony Rice. Um, but we caught up you know, through the years playing different um, you know, bluegrass jam sessions and uh, television specials and, and whatnot. And so, uh, you know, he, he started out as a, um, a hero and then became a mentor and then became a colleague. So a, a full-scale journey uh, with, uh, with my relationship with Tony Rice. What, what was it about Tony Rice's playing that made him the, the legend in bluegrass guitar music that he is? Well, he was better. <laughs> he was better than anybody else, for, for starters. Um, but he also um, came with a new approach, um, a more refined um, sound and style, you know, a tech, technique and musical ideas. I mean, he really opened the door to a, a, in a field that there wasn't that much history um, in exploring the guitar as a lead instrument. I mean, you really, you, you can't go you know, much further back than Doc Watson really made a huge contribution in bluegrass lead guitar playing, solo guitar playing, you know. So it's not really an, a, a very old genre, if you will. And um, Tony Rice would, was, would be the second generation after Doc. Same, same here. I, I, I guess I put myself in the same generation as Tony, although I was always a little bit younger because I started out so young. So I was younger than a lot of my colleagues, I was playing in groups with them, and a lot of my colleagues were about 10 years older than me. You know, Tony Rice, Sam Bush, David Grisman, all, uh, all that bunch, Jerry Douglas. So, yeah, he just, you know, he just broke down the doors, you know, and, and just came in, and he became the legend that he, that he did. And, uh, you know, personally, I would credit his guitar playing to really inspire my own um, even as a young teen, um, although I was really heavily influenced by people like Clarence White um, directly and Doc Watson and Norman Blake and Dan Crary, really the, the only <laughs> other prominent uh, bluegrass flat pickers, you know, uh, on the scene. 
they were all my heroes, you know, because they, they were not only the only ones, but they were they were all, you know, just my first uh, go-to. I loved their albums. I loved getting to know them and play with them. Um, and same with Tony, and he just became, you know, just a cut above. Yeah, Tony uh, just recently passed away. Mark O'Connor is on the line, and Mark, you mentioned you. I always thought of you as a peer of, of Tony Rice and, and uh, David Grisman, but you are younger. In fact, I think you have the record for being the youngest contract signed contract, and that's when you were twelve years old. Uh, yeah, uh, Rander Records. <laughs> I was um, signed to their label um, and did six albums uh, with them, and I was uh, very young when I signed with Warner Brothers as a artist producer. I was also the, I wasn't the youngest artist, but I was the youngest artist producer, uh, or one of them, at least out of Nashville. And when I signed with them when I was 20, uh, about 22 or 23. So yeah, it's been really a, an amazing thing to kind of just hang in there this long and kind of be a little bit of an elder statesman now. Well, well at, if you were back. at 22 and 23 years old, what kind of projection did you see yourself in the music business? Well, you know, I just, I, I mean, you as an instrumentalist, you hear from a lot of people. Um, I mean, like everybody. I mean, everybody from people inside the business itself of music to fans, to relatives, you know, to friends that, uh, you know, you're not going to probably make it as a musician because, you know, you're this eclectic instrumentalist, you know. And, um, you know, it's easy to understand that viewpoint because there's not many people you can point to and go, see, they made it, you know. <laughs> um, but um, there was always something that I felt... Um, that um, I could get there through my creativity. You know, it wasn't just the fact that I, um, I could play well, um, but I played multiple instruments and um, I wrote for those instruments and I had interesting ideas and settings for the instruments. And I think that's what really made the difference for me. Um, and, you know, I have so many albums to now showcase all those differences. I mean, even with Markology 2, you know, it's just a solo guitar album, right? But it's really quite interesting because it's so rare that there's a solo guitar album played with a flat pick. Um, you know, when you think of most time, when you think of solo guitar albums, you think of uh, finger style, you know, whether on seal strings or nylon strings, depending on the genre. Um, but it's so rare to take a flat pick and create solo repertoire from it with no uh, accompaniment. And that is just a really unusual thing, uh, especially in bluegrass, but for, for any style of music, uh, jazz or, um, or any kind of new acoustic music, or frankly, uh, electric guitar. When you play with a flat pick, you think um, automatically, okay, I'm gonna strum and accompany something uh, maybe accompany a vocal or accompany another soloist, or I'm going to take the flat pick and play lead, and people are going to accompany me and fill in behind me. So I created this kind of style that you hear on Green Sleeves and, and other tracks that your listeners uh, will hear, 
where I'm kind of using the flat pick um, to, to create this kind of, uh, um, you know, cross-pollination between strumming and lead playing with flourishes and, and, uh, and you know, whole kind of sections of tunes where the lead becomes strumming, if you will. And, uh, and it just breaks it up. It makes it, um, you know, I, I think more orchestral in a, in a sense where the guitar becomes uh, a bigger, um, I think, bigger viewpoint. Um, it has a, is a larger structure to it, the dynamics, the textural uh, changes, the color of the sound changes. Uh, so there, there's a lot more dynamics going on. Is this a sound that's in your head, or are you trying to duplicate something, or written it down? Well, I think that the 20 years um, off uh, with no guitar allowed me to bring in uh, my other influences and experiences. Um, what I've been mainly doing during those 20 years is my classical composing and performing. So I had, you know, string trios, string quartets, and I was playing a lot with symphony orchestra uh, with my concertos. So all of a sudden I'm picking up the solo guitar and it becomes a new instrument um, with that type of, um, you know, 20 year experience going into it. So it took me, you know, I mean, it took me a matter of just a few months uh, to get my calluses back, and then I could certainly move my left hand fingers because I've been playing violin this whole time. It took me a little while to to get the discipline of the right hand back, but as soon as I was getting that back, um, then I started to think of the guitar in a in a new soundscape, if you will. It was it was a it was it was a kind of a reinvention. Mark O'Connor is on the line, and we're talking about his new album, Markology 2, a follow-up to Markology 1 that was released 42 years ago. Well, let me play another song from it. Beaumont Rag is a traditional tune. Is there much improvisational in here as well? Yeah, there, there, a lot of these pieces um, on the album, um, there's some improvisation, uh, like in Greensleeves, and then I, you know, I narrowed it down to, oh, I like that version uh, that I recorded. With other examples like Beaumont Reg, I really worked on variations. <laughs> this is really a theme in variations that, that takes Beaumont Reg way out there, further than I'd ever taken it. Let's listen to Mark O'Connor's version of Beaumont Rag. Thank you. 
Beaumont Rag, Mark O'Connor from his new album, Markology 2. There's so many things I want to talk about. One is, to start off with, is your online presence. Almost all the songs on the album, is uh, you have a YouTube version, and also you've been doing weekly shows with your family from your home. Uh, I, I guess you've adapted pretty well. Well, you know, I uh, the first month of the pandemic, I was thinking, okay, uh, you know, collectively, all the musicians in, in the world, <laughs> we're all in this, but we'll probably come back online here in a couple of months. And then month two came, and I'm sitting there going, you know, this could be a while, and I'm going to go crazy if I don't have some kind of musical outlet. And so I started to think about creating more guitar arrangements. I didn't really have the idea that I was actually creating an album yet. I just was going song by song, working up uh, arrangements and then recording them. I didn't necessarily know where it was going to lead, but I knew performance vehicles. So we started Mondays with Mark and Maggie, my wife, uh, Mondays with Mark and Maggie. And uh, we're on our, uh, we'll, we'll do our 48th show this uh, Monday. <laughs> and we've not missed a Monday since we started up um, in June. It took me a couple of months to get the equipment together. I had never uh, streamed uh, before. And I knew, I, I mean, I didn't know much about it. And I knew that I had to really know a lot about it. If I was going to be the engineer the person that was running the cameras and the sound all inside our home. So it took me a couple of months to get the gear together and to see what was working for us. I wanted to make sure that the sound was really incredible. Um, and we ended up using these uh, stage microphones that uh, Maggie and I have been using for a couple of years. And they work just great. And we've got a, like a three camera system. Actually, I'm kind of coming through, you, uh, through to you uh, through Zoom right now. Yeah, so it's really, that has really been a lifesaver because, I mean, you know, since I was, uh, I mean, you know, 12 years old, I've been performing and I don't know if I've ever not performed, <laughs> um, often at least. And so it just makes me feel like I'm home, um, that I've got uh, some kind of uh, outlet to play, you know, and uh, play for some kind of audience. And so... We've got subscribers and ticket holders. You can go to markoconnor.com homepage. The viewers right there and the ticket and the subscri uh, subscription sales are right there. And we're going to keep it going um, uh, for a long time because we don't, we still don't have any dates uh, booked until uh, early 22. They were all, you know, originally postponed and then ultimately canceled. I think that's what happened to a lot of musicians is that the, the, they were postponed for, you know, four months or six months and then then ultimately canceled. Those contracts were canceled and then everything had to be renegotiated. And, and a lot of the theaters that we were working with have, you know, dramatically changed their personnel or schedule. So, you know, he's kind of like starting over. And so it's been really a, a huge impact for musicians. And we were, and Maggie and I were certainly two of those musicians that that were really impacted by this. I know the University of Miami used to have you come down quite often to help with their music program. Do you know if that is going to continue in the future? Well, I, I had really a, a wonderful relationship there. 
for five years. Um, I was artist in residence there and uh, did a lot of wonderful things um, on campus uh, with different student groups taught um, in that capacity and and uh, introduced a lot of new ideas for string playing. But, you know, I uh, I think they moved to other artists and residences. <laughs> um, oh, I see. Okay. You know, to uh, and so five years is a long time. I mean, uh, you know, anything beyond that, I would, I would, I mean, you know, you'd have to become a professor there or something. And I wasn't quite ready. I didn't really want to do that. I was mainly a touring artist and, and uh, although, you know, I mean, the older I get, the, the more that might sound more <laughs> attractive to have a, a, a teaching base at a university and then, you know, still have a schedule of touring. Mark O'Connor is on the line. Speaking of teaching, you've created the Mark O'Connor Method, which uh, last time I talked to you, you said you were challenging the Suzuki Method. And have you had much for, moving forward with that? Yeah, it's been really um, very consistent um, as far as uh, people coming to the, the book series and teaching from it. Um, I hear a, a lot of, from teachers that they're using it um, and their, their kids love it. I've never, you know, I've never heard from a teacher that their students don't like it. And some, some teachers might choose not to use it because of their personal preferences uh, in music or literature or, or, you know, style, um, or they have something of their own they want to, want to do or, or promote with their students. But it's been really amazing. I mean, it's, uh, it, it has, has kept at the same clip of growth over this 12 years <clears throat> that has been out. <clears throat> and I've added more books to it. It goes up to book five now, which is the, which I would say the conservatory level for American violin. Um, and uh, I'm going to actually prepare to do a new repertoire book for the O'Connor Method using my caprices, including the most recent caprice I just composed for the Yehudi Menuhin International Violin Competition, which is actually taking place this week. And they're using this newly written caprice of mine for the competition. So so the top young violinists from around the world have to learn and memorize my caprice as a part of the uh, competition repertoire, you know, along with their standards that they, uh, they are required to do uh, from Mozart to, to other composers. So it's really a, um, you know, I, I still have my hand in that world uh, big time. And then, that, of course, that feeds the O'Connor method uh, idea that um, that classical musicians should be, know a lot more about American string playing. And I think that idea is really catching on. Mark O'Connor is on the line. Well, you have delved into classical music quite a bit. Uh, one of your first compositions, uh, the Fiddle Concerto for Fiddle and Orchestra. It, you, it's interesting you say the word fiddle instead of violin. Don't you get paid more if you used violin? Yeah, you know, you would think so, but there's there's also a lot of there's a lot of broke violinists out there too. So you 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 know <laughs> nothing is uh, the silver bullet uh, when it comes to this instrument. Um, but in actuality, the the name really 
um, was branded. I mean, I, you know, I didn't really put much thought into it other than it was so unusual. Fiddle, concerto. Those two words usually do not go together, uh, actually ever went together before I did it. And I think that was part of the, the thing that kind of broke through was uh, here's something that is really brand new. And so uh, that was my first one. And then I you know, composed a series of other violin concertos. And then I end up um, a few years ago composing my ninth concerto and that's called the Improvised Violin Concerto, which is yet another sequence of words that you will never hear together until my piece, uh, the Improvised Violin Concerto. And, uh, and that's exactly uh, descriptive of what it is. I'm actually improvising the entire solo line while I have the orchestration all set. Um, and it's a really unique piece, just as unique as that first fiddle concerto. I'm I'm kind of curious. You you are in both the folk world and the classical world, is and and it seems to me, right off the bat, that the classical world is much more competitive than the folk world. Uh, how would you compare the two? Well, I think the 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 professional folk world is very competitive. You know, they've got their uh, you know career tracks and their award systems and. They're competing for the for the shows against each other, and they're trying to figure out who's going to headline the festival and who's not. <laughs> it's very competitive scene. All all music genres are can be very competitive, um, and at the same time, classical music um, might have the rap of being very competitive. But I have found it very nurturing and very open. Um, so. You know, the package is not always what it seems. You know, like uh, my biggest collaborators and supporters at the University of Miami, I would have to say was the classical string department. I mean, I certainly had a lot of support from the jazz department and the uh, Bruce Hornsby songwriting department. But I would say the classical strings department trumped both of those. So... You know, you never know. Um, and that's what I love about my career um, in music is that it's just full of surprises and you never discount anything um, and you give it a shot and you try to create bridges uh, and some people will get on the bridge with you, you know, and, and that makes it really sweet. Mark O'Connor is on the line. His new album is called Markology 2. And before I play a song from that album... You've, when you were young, you met Bill Monroe. What do you think he'd say about the world of bluegrass today? Well, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty easy. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't really like the modern stuff um, that we were doing um, when he was alive. So, but towards the end, um, he really embraced us. Um, and uh, he wanted to make sure that his music um, had a legacy with the, with the musicians that came after him. And so he had a mission. He was on a mission. He wanted to make sure that while we're playing all our stuff, our innovative, you know, new grass or whatever you want to call it, he wanted to make sure that we still knew Roanoke and, <laughs> and Mule Skinner and, and uh, Jerusalem Ridge 
and Gold Rush and, and tunes that he wrote that we would keep them in our repertoire. And I certainly have done that. I have actually put Bill Monroe tunes in my O'Connor method. And I think that he would be really satisfied with that result. Um, I don't think that he, you know, being a life that he has and experiences that he's had. I mean, remember, he, he, saw, he saw Elvis Presley completely turn one of his songs upside down. So he was used to that. I mean, you know, that was way back in, what, in the 50s? So he was used to that. I think that he, in the end, he was proud that he could con make a contribution. And, um, and he would take us younger guys and take us in the corner and teach us stuff. You know, like Bill Monroe was doing that with me. Every time I saw him at a, at a, a get together, he would take me in the corner and show me uh, and teach me some of the tunes that he either had been playing for, for a long time or that he was writing. So it was really sweet. I enjoyed the liner notes of your new album, Marco, Markology 2, and uh, it's how your family now, you have a family, bound, a family band now, and they, I guess, you made you more of a folk artist? Well, they invited me back into the scene that they kind of grew up around, um, and, and listening to my records and loving that stuff that inspired them. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's really what brought me back into the scene. I wouldn't have played guitar, certainly wouldn't have played uh, any guitar, I don't believe, without my family encouraging me to play with them and play some of the material that I was known for that inspired them to play their instruments and the styles that they wanted to learn. And so, yeah, I mean, it was really a, an amazing kind of journey back. And now, and then, of course, I'm married to Maggie, and she, she loves both classical music and the folk styles. And so it, it keeps me fully engaged in this. And, and uh, you know, we even sing stuff now. So she's a, a really a fine lead singer, and I've got, I, I can add some harmony vocals so things that I just, you know, might not have thought of doing as I'm up there, you know, premiering my, you know, improvised violin concerto, I'm not thinking about singing harmony to a song, but here I am. So I'm kind of doing it all still, you know. Mark O'Connor's new album is Markology 2. And what is truly amazing is that the guitar is not even your primary instrument. The fiddle is your primary instrument. Yeah, I mean, that's it's true. I mean, I... I um, I would, if, if you went back to my teens, though, I think most people would have thought um, that it was about equally split because I played guitar in the David Grisman Quintet and with Stefan Grappelli. I also played violin in there, too, but my, my prominent roles were on guitar. And then when I joined the Dregs, who incidentally had done some time in Miami, they, they all went to the University of Miami. When I played with the Dregs, I was both on violin and guitar, um, but mo you know more prominently violin. I think it my career was really established as a soloist when I went to Nashville and became the top fiddler, and then started writing all these concertos and putting my violin prominently uh, into a classical setting. So, uh, you know, the guitar's always been there. It was my first instrument, my first love. 
Um, I might never have played the violin if it weren't for the guitar. So um, for me, there's a lot of history there, but certainly I think this guitar album is surprising a lot of people. It's, you know, and I, I, uh, I don't, uh, it doesn't surprise me because it, it kind of, uh, it, uh, it wasn't something that I had planned and I didn't actually think I could do it really. I, I, I just, I was hoping that I could play a little bit of guitar coming back after the 20 year layoff. Um, but to take it this far, I was really, it was so surprising to me. Markology too is Mark O'Connor's new album. And I'm going to play Kamala's Boogie. And I'm surprised this is on the album. That sounds like you're gone political, Mark. Yeah. Well, we were doing our show, um, and then uh, Kamala Harris was, um, you know, picked for vice president um, uh, nomination. And we were just, we just celebrated that. We thought, oh my gosh, you know, um, a woman of color, um, if finally in our American, you know, uh, the hierarchy of our government and um, all the way potentially to the White House. So I just wrote a tune. I, I was working on that tune for her and I just named it Kamala Boogie. And uh, it was just really fun, just a very celebratory uh, tune. And it was before uh, they won the election, of course. So it was just the fact that she was getting recognized and and I thought that was so cool. What, what In the song, there's some impromptu talking. At the beginning, I hear you say E all the way down to C. What, what are you talking about there? Yeah. So that, that actual cut um, <laughs> uh, from the whole album is actually the only live cut. But it's kind of funny because live for pandemic time is, you know, from our home <laughs> through, through streaming. So there's actually no crowd noise. So... Uh, so I was just telling the audience through the microphones and the camera streaming that I'm going to tune my bottom E string all the way down to C, which is very unusual because uh, in most guitar lingo, there's the drop D tuning, uh, which is a really wonderful tuning. Matter of fact, green sleeves that you just played um, is a drop D. Um, but going all the way down to C with a low string is very difficult because most guitar players play with medium gauge strings or even medium lights. And I play with heavy gauge um, because I wanted to get this really big tone out of the dreadnought uh, style guitars. And um, I had played with heavy gauge when I was a kid, actually, and, and with David Grisman. And I wanted to return to that tone because, you know, playing a violin for all these years you really get into the, the beauty of the tone of the instrument. Like that's what really drives you. If you've got, if you have a beautiful sounding violin and you're getting great tone, then everything kind of just fits in around it. And I wanted to approach the guitar that way. Um, my return to the guitar, I was gonna, I had it in my mind that I wanted to get this beautiful big tone. So I went with the heavy gauge strings, even though it was gonna be tougher on my left, on my left hand, especially, getting it back in shape. But I thought, you know, it's a challenge. Um, I'm just gonna set the mark real high, uh, the bar real high and try to get there. And so consequently, because I, I've got a, a, a such a heavy gauge E string, which is like, I think a 59, um, I can tune it all the way down to C and it won't buzz out 
or it buzzes out, you know, a little bit, but it still has a lot of tone to it, which is very unusual for a guitar player to be able to do, um, uh, unless they are playing with heavy gates. So that's why I was telling the audience that I'm going to turn it all the way down to C to play this new new tune. Mark O'Connor's new album is Markology 2, just a breathtaking solo acoustic album, and uh, congratulations, Mark. I really, really think it's incredible. Thank you so much for playing it, Michael, and uh, everybody listening to it, and, uh, and it was a, really a rewarding thing. I, you know, I, every year I think, okay, well, I may have released my last CD, because I've got a lot, and... Uh, but this is the four, I was going to stop with 45. I had 45 CDs and I thought, you know, one more, maybe one more, 46. So this is the 46th feature CD in my career. And, uh, and it's a privilege to be able to return to the guitar for it. Here's Mark O'Connor's Kamala Boogie. 